Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Manchester United are top of the Premier League for the first time in three years. As magic tricks go, that's in the David Blaine class of illusion and escapology. For all the doubts about the manager and the flaws in his team, United will go to Anfield on Sunday to face an uncertain Liverpool with purpose and confidence. So, Jordan, United, contenders or pretenders? Oh man, it sounds really kind of perverse and just full of jealousy to suggest that they are pretenders when they're top of the league. But I think they are. The reason I say pretenders is because I still just don't trust them. I don't trust this Man United team under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to get the job completed. I don't trust them to see this through. I think they should be given credit. And, you know, I've been on your podcast and battered United and Solskjaer all season. <laughs> I think rightly so, but I'll give them credit for, for, for the job they've done. They are top of the league. So it does seem really weird to suggest they're not in the title race because then how can you be top of the league with half the year gone and not be in the race? I just look at it as a as, as a as a full-on race rather than where we are now. And I just don't see United come May, June, July, whatever the season finishes, being top of the league. I think that they are operating at their optimum right now. I think there's no more to come from United. I think with Liverpool and Manchester City, there's, there's another level or two or players to still c- come in, which I think could really push those two teams above United. So... They're, they're top of the league and their, their run has been insane. You know, they haven't won every game away from home. But I just don't have the, the faith that they can maintain this. I think the game against Liverpool this weekend is a really interesting one. And I will say, I've got a gut feeling United might cause an upset this this weekend. I wouldn't. It wouldn't be the biggest shock for me if United won that game. But I think it's a bigger game for Liverpool than it is for United. But if we speak maybe next week, Mike, and United have won the game, I might change my view a little <laughs> bit by then. But right here and right now, I, I don't think United will have enough to sustain this form to the end of the season. So pretenders for me. Yeah, well, firm opinions are changing on a daily basis at the moment. <laughs> Don't worry about that, mate. I suppose this game on Sunday, Dom, it's, it's going to be one of those sort of spinal tap games, isn't it? The volume's going to be turned up to 11. In this season of all seasons, is it wise to actually read too much into a single match? I think 
this season's probably taught us that you can't even read too much into three or four games in succession. I mean, all of these clubs, to some extent, have endured blips. I mean, Liverpool are enduring theirs at the moment. We've seen what's happened to Arsenal for periods. We're seeing what's happening to Spurs now. Manchester City, very, very slow, suddenly gathering pace on the shoulder of the leaders. Manchester United with that appalling start, particularly at Old Trafford. So, yes, placing too much emphasis on one fixture, even at this stage of the season, coming up to the halfway point, is probably unwise because there is an unpredictability to it all. That's not to say that we, <laughs> we as journalists and pundits, should not get carried away by events at, at, at Anfield this weekend because I think it's easy to get caught up in the moment and we're all seeking evidence of a recovery from Liverpool and 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 some and some fight basically from Liverpool in terms of the defence of their trophy and and also a bit like bit like Jordan said we're we're all seeking whether whether United are actually proper contenders for this for this title this season and I think we all share that scepticism I think that is there that is and that's born of seeing them getting beaten 6-1 at home by by Spurs and 3-1 at home by Palace and that that's the nature of this most bizarre season that 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 is sort of sums it up that you might actually you've got a, a team that's three points clear going to the defending champions who has endured a 6-1 home defeat this season I mean it's surreal really but great fun and and uh, yeah it, it'll it'll be an intriguing afternoon but probably not a definitive one what about the cumulative effects of the fixture congestion Jordan you've got Bruno Fernandes flirting with burnout. Marcus Rashford, nine games in 30 days as well as running the country. That's too much, isn't it? It is. It is. It's looking like Fernandes more so is, is flagging a little bit. And that is part of the reason why, in my first answer, I, I, I just don't see United hanging on at this level for the next half of the season. I think if they're going to win this title, they're going to need Fernandez to operate at the level of which he's been operating so far. And I just don't see it. Now, maybe, maybe it's just a handful of games where he's dipped a couple of levels. But I also don't think even if he is operating at the level he's been operating at, that on its own is enough. I think they're going to need the likes of Martial to chip in with goals. They're going to need off the bench Greenwood to come in with some goals as well. They're going to need Pogba, who's on form right now, to sustain that as well. So even if he wasn't flagging, I still wouldn't bank the house of United winning the title off the back of Bruno Fernandes, who I think probably is leading candidate right now for player of the year. How Solskjaer manages those players is interesting. They're still in the Europa League. There's a lot of games, as we know, still for them to play in that. I think they're going to want to win that trophy as well so all of these elements of managing players and managing players time I think also will play a massive role for United more so than for City and for Liverpool in terms of winning the Premier League title this season mm. What do you think the key areas of the game will be on Sunday Dom? Do you, th do you expect Liverpool to, to target the right side of the United defence? That axis of Bailey and Wan-Bissaka is a bit unconvincing at times and they're also going to be vulnerable at set pieces aren't they? Possibly. I, I, look, I'm a big fan of, of Wan Bissaka, as, as you'd expect me to be. I, I suppose I think he's one of the, I think he's the <laughs> best one-on-one -on -one defender probably in the country. Certainly the best fullback in that regard. So I, I don't. It, it's more the overloads, I guess, and 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 the, the sort of the constant changing of the centre half pairing at his side. But to me, on, on more general terms, I, I suspect that that 
more on on Sunday. It will it will depend on on who Liverpool have available, whether they have centre halves that they can pick at centre half and allow their midfielders to move back into midfield. Because if Jordan Henderson is playing midfield in in central midfield and is able to dictate play from from a central berth, that could be the influence that gives Liverpool the edge. But from from centre back, it's a it's a very different game plan, and I, and as as well as he's done filling in there, I do think it it sort of takes something out of Liverpool's approach play and 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 general pizzazz, and certainly the supply line to that front three. It, it's it's about balance. It's about Liverpool finding a balance. I don't I look at United now; they've got so many, so much strength in depth, so many options that they've got. I mean, they can chop and change, but they're they're changing like for like in many ways. With Liverpool, it's because they're stretched in certain areas of the pitch, particularly in central defence. It becomes a, a balancing act for Jurgen Klopp, and you know you, you may have you may get people who fill in perfectly adequately at centre back, but it does detract from other areas of the team. And the, and the midfield has been maybe where they haven't been quite exerting the same amount of control in recent weeks, or they they did so well last season. Can I just add to that? Sorry, very briefly, Mike. Mm. To your question, I, I would argue that Bailly and Wan-Bissaka are the two best United defenders. So if I was Liverpool, I'd argue go down the other side, if, if anything, <laughs> because you might have more joy down the left-hand side. I think it's a massive game for Liverpool because they would need to, I don't think it's a must win, but if they were to lose this game and go six points behind United, United will think, hang on a minute, we, we, we could cement, we could be on a run here to cement in a top two worst case position here. I think for Liverpool, the, the lack of fans, it hasn't been a massive factor this season but I wonder if you know no fans in this sort of game will be felt by Liverpool especially if they concede the first goal it's the best defence against the best home record I believe I'm not if I'm not mistaken there so I think if Solskjaer will he get a better chance to beat Liverpool at Liverpool players are missing their form isn't great I wonder if Solskjaer can maybe really enhance reputation here by just going for it a, a draw for United I think is a good point if they can get out of there with a point I think they're taking that right now but you half think to yourself imagine if you win this game if United go to Liverpool and win not only points wise what does that do but the statement we've gone to the champions we've gone and beaten them we're now six points clear I just wonder if he might think to himself you know what it's a I hate this phrase free hit but I'm going to use it anyway it's a little bit of a free hit do you know what I mean because what they've got if they lose the game they're level they're still top of the league but if they win the game they could really change people like my minds people like me's mind if that makes sense and really start respecting United's title charge yeah, well, you know, I'd, I'd agree with you on, on the impact of no fans, Jordan, and I might even excuse you from uh, destroying my coaching career, but, you know, let's go. <laughs> Not intended. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, which we, we you know rely on, don't we, in our game, Michael Oliver, in an interview with Ollie Holt, admitted finally his mistake in not sending off Jordan Pickford following that lunge that injured uh, Virgil van Dijk. I said, with with hindsight, Dom, do you think that incident will be seen as the moment Liverpool's title defence was, if not doomed, certainly considerably inconvenienced? That's the moment where Liverpool were sort of brought back closer to the pack. Virgil van Dijk being such an outstanding defender and leader within that team. When you take out such a key part of the spine of that of the champions and and he's ruled out for 
whatever it is, nine months, a year, whatever whatever the period you'll be out. Yeah, that is a huge, huge moment. And the sending off is neither here nor there, really. Clearly he should have he should have gone. But 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 the reality is when you when you when you damage and a machine that was just working so well, all the components were were in sync. They were they all knew their roles, they all they were all working so smoothly and you take that out and you're basically taking the engine out. I mean that's gone. And it's taken them a long time given the other injuries they've had at centre back as well. You know, you you're taking Gomez out as well and Matip's had his injury issues all season. And and as as I said before, as good a job as Fabinho has done there and and uh, the youngsters who have come in and, and, and more recently Jordan Henderson by filling in, by overloading almost in that area, you're 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 detracting from other parts of the team, and 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 the collective hasn't quite had the as the depth as you wouldn't expect them to really. I mean, it's well the, these injury rushes. Every club in this in the division has had major injury problems this season, but but in most cases they've sort of been spread evenly around the team. So you, you lose. You might lose one right back, you might lose a striker, but you probably have one in reserve on each in each occasion. With Liverpool, when you lose three or four defenders in one go and you're having to then take out your midfielders and put them in defence, then you're suddenly lacking in midfield and, and that, that's where you become exposed. That's where the danger is and that's where the, the schedule is so brutal and so unforgiving because there's there's basically no respite. You, you, you're constantly trying to battle, you're papering over cracks, whatever, whichever cliche you want to use. It makes it so difficult to find that balance and Liverpool have struggled on that. I, I thought they'd run away with it. I thought once they won so convincingly at, at Sellers Park in December, I thought, okay, they, they've they found their rhythm again. They're just going to go on this this run now and stretch well ahead of the pack. And, and actually, precisely the opposite has happened. They've almost shrunk on themselves that left all their incision all their their purpose and ruthless finishing they left that all in one corner of south london and and whenever they've come up against whether it be west brom or southampton they've they've really really struggled and it's just because it looks an awkward blend at the moment mm. can we look at it at a, in a sort of a wider context jordan how big is liverpool's trophy window i ask that because if you look at it Nine significant contracts, you know, people like Salah, Van Dyke, Fabinho, Henderson, etc. They're all going to be up in 2023. And that there'll be a huge churn rate then. There'll be some then talk about, well, how long's Klopp going to be around? Have they only got this season and maybe next season to actually rack up the trophies? Yes. And I think it all you mentioned Klopp there. I think it all revolves around whether Klopp wants to extend his contract, which I believe he's got another two to two or three years left on. I think it's two more years after. I think if he wants to stay beyond his contract, I and, and if he knows that in his own mind now, I think he will be planning for the next five years. And part of that process, I think, will be well. Henderson won't be here in five years' time. You know, Salah probably won't be here in five years' time. Therefore, it's we need to get uh, maximise our, our fee for these guys now and move them on next season or commit to them. So I, I think 
I, I think how well Liverpool do over the next couple of years and how many trophies they can rack up, I think it all centres not so much around the players individually, no matter how good they are. I think it's more around Klopp and how long he wants to stay. I do think Liverpool, we have to remember the, the, the level at which they've been operating for the past two to three years is actually quite phenomenal. To get 90 plus points two years in a row, a Champions League final, they lost, and then a Champions League final win, then the Premier League win. It's just three or four, three and a half years now, I think, of operating at a very high level. There was going to be a dip. They may, I think what they do in this window we're in, quite, we're in right now, Mike, is interesting because with Van Dijk, they waited. Everyone says to them, oh, get a centre-back, get a centre-back, get a centre-back, and they waited for their man. And we're seeing how that worked out. I wonder if they're thinking... We're not going to be rushed into buying a centre-back in this window to keep our title this season because we know the guy we want in the summer. And if it means sacrificing losing the title this season, but winning the title next season because we've got the guy we wanted, I wonder if that may well be their approach. So I think a lot of what they do over the next two, three years will be centred around Jurgen Klopp. But what I think happens between now and the end of this season, I'm watching quite keenly because all the signs you pointed seem to me that they need a centre-back now, maybe two, but they've shown that they won't be harried and rushed into buying one. Do you think they'll go and get Ben White eventually from Brighton? I think they will. I think he's the guy they want. But I, I think their previous transfers have shown that they're not going to be rushed. If they have to wait to the summer, they're not going to throw an extra £10 million on it now to get him now for a short-term fix. I think he's the guy they do want. Whoever they is they want, I think they'll, they'll rather wait and get it right in the summer rather than rush and get it done now. Mm. Dom, you know, Jordan talked there about the impact and influence of Jurgen Klopp. What about Pep Guardiola at City and, and specifically his very recent influence on team development there? You know, there's been a rash of stories over the last couple of days about you know City excelling because now they're letting the ball do more of the work. What do you make of all that? I suspect that I suspect that we're probably a bit simplistic with the way we look at it, if I'm honest. I, mm. I think, again, it's, it, it often comes down to to balance and who you have available and, 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 and finding a style that suits the personnel at your disposal. And I think it's fair to say that that it's taken a while this season for, for City to find the right blend. And that may be, weirdly. I mean, for example, the, their defensive record and the strength they've, they've they've clearly developed now with Ruben Diaz and whether it really John Stones or Laporte when he's fit. Weirdly, that's probably partly due to the fact they also don't have a a really fit and out and out striker available. I mean, I know Jesus is 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 back now from his his. I think it was COVID that his his latest issue. But I mean, they've had to find a, a way of 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 excelling or of finding rhythm without a player at the top of the pitch who's going to score you twenty goals, twenty five goals, and and it's just taken them a while to stumble upon that. And it you know whether that be Kevin De Bruyne oper- operating almost as a false nine or, or there was a period last night where where I think Jesus came off the bench and was playing left wing and that they were still pursuing you know midfielders going through the center finding finding a way of incorporate, incorporating Foden into the into the setup but they've got it now they, they've they've almost done it on the quiet and this recent run that they've been on stingy run and we, we've all looked at the defense but actually they're actually playing more like the old city um, in terms of their possession of the football and, and use of the ball um, in forward areas 
yeah, there's a bit of profligacy there as well. Um, and but that's again, it's born of the fact that they don't have an Aguero who's going to just convert all the chances that they create. And there is a rhythm and a and a and an ease and a comfort to the way they're playing at the moment. And you know, we spent the first ten minutes of this podcast talking about how Liverpool and, and Manchester United are head to head in a in a title clash at the weekend, but. City on their shoulders will be alarming both of those clubs because they've really, really found some rhythm and form. They weren't great against Brighton on on Wednesday night, but they did what they had to do. They sort of almost clung on a bit towards the end and then obviously had the penalties that could have made it 2-0. They've got Crystal Palace at this weekend who they'll look at and think there's an opportunity there to get another three points and keep this momentum going. And I I just think on the quiet, they've had their bad patch this season. They've... They've 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 almost they've almost concentrated on just getting that balance right and, and quietly sorted it all out and now they've got that and they're on their run now and it wouldn't surprise me if they steamrolled through and and were the the team that challenged Liverpool's authority most coherently over the the, the back end of the season. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Do you, um, Jordan? Yeah, I do. And, and I remember somebody made a really interesting point. It might have actually been you, Mike, I recently. Doubt, I, I doubt occasionally, much, only occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was Mike, to be fair to him. Um, but if it wasn't, apologies to whoever it was. It was a theory <laughs> that they thought, whoever said it, said that they wondered if Pep Guardiola, this was part of the plan. So the, the slow start they had was part of the plan of actually saving energy if you like and saving legs for the back end of the season he foresaw that with this unique season there'd be lots of injuries in the back end of the season there'd be lots of games in a very condensed period of time and their slow start was actually intended and he wasn't actually that disappointed or angry with their slow start because he was thinking of the long game. Now, if that theory was indeed, if, if it's true, then you've got to give him great credit because he may be the beneficiary of having that kind of foresight of slowly, slowly, but we'll win the, we'll win the race in the end. I think to Dom's point, he, he's correct. On the ball, we're seeing a lot more of the old city for sure. What we're not seeing of, and this goes back to maybe the theory of the long game is the pressing. They're not pressing as much as, 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 they, as they're used to. And that may be because Dom mentions they don't have an out-and-out striker to do that. But it might just be because, is, is there any point in pressing this season? Do you really want to be getting your players for 38 games in this unique year, pressing from the front? They seem to be dropping off 15, 20 yards a lot more so this year. I, I was saying for the last couple of months that I didn't think City were bankers for top four on the basis that I didn't see where the goals are going to come from. Now, that looks a little bit stupid now, and I'll probably retract that statement now. But I still have concerns about the goals over the course of the season where they come from. Defensively, they look amazing. They look very, very tight at the back. But I don't think Aguero will play three games in a row again. I mean, even two at the moment is a struggle. I like Jesus, but is he the guy that's going to get you those 15 goals I think needed between now and in the season in the league to secure the league? I'm not convinced. I still have concerns about their title running just purely because how much longer can you rely on just being defensively solid? At some point, you're going to have to score two, three, four goals to win enough games to, to win to, to win the title. And that's my only my only concern about City. A lack of a striker could, could be their undoing for me. Yeah, I think actually probably from memory, that theory was put forward by Miguel Delaney. But Miggs is a good bloke. He, he wouldn't mind me taking just, just credit. Just take it, Mike. You know, just... Yeah, yeah, the spanner <laughs> in the works on, on that theory, which none of us could really ever 
take into account is is COVID. And COVID can come into your club and wipe out your first team squad overnight and, and take out all your options. And mm. you, you might have a physically fit squad because you've you've saved energy over the course of the season. But if COVID arrives in your bubble, you're knackered. And, and as it has as done. As it has yeah, done, yeah. to be fair. And, and then, yeah. then that, if that prompts postponements and given their schedule with with Champions League football and and, and the FA Cup etc and the League Cup final still to come I, I suppose if, if there is even more congestion towards the end of the season because of postponements then then they would still risk the same physical issues that other clubs have had already so but I, I just I just like so much of what they're doing at the moment and and we shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate that the impact that so someone like Ruben Diaz who in his first season in English football has just been a phenomenon what a player he is and he's bringing the best out of the likes of John Stones around him and also let's remember Phil Foden, Phil Foden is their leading scorer their leading scorer this is a player that I think in the last podcast we were talking about does he need to go elsewhere to get games he's their leading scorer he has they, there's faith in him now I mean he's that they've got a lot going for them and, and they'll be a real real threat yeah, no wonder even Guardiola's now talking about him as a regular. You know, you've got Phil Foden, only 20, nearly 21, and he can pretty much do anything, can't he, in terms of he plays wide, he does, he's an 8, a 10. He, he thinks so quickly and just acts in a mature fashion. So, you know, City are going to you know, reap the benefits of him, hopefully, for you know for a number of years. Jordan, I just want to look at City from a, just a slightly broader perspective, if I could, and their business model. Now, they're now consulting for other clubs. Club Bolivar in Bolivia were brought into their group. Do you think we're ever close to conflicts of interest? And now, you know, I, you know, we all know football, and these moves tend to generate suspicion. But is that based on envy more than anything else? Maybe a little bit of envy for sure, but I also think there is a there is if not now we're reaching the a point where I think it's fair to ask: Is there a conflict? I was never comfortable with the idea of a football club owning satellite clubs across the world as they do in Australia and America. I don't I don't like that. That for me feels like a very obvious conflict in in a very subtle way. So so yeah, I, th- I think it's fair. I, th- I think other teams will look on, other people look on and there will be a little bit of jealousy about what City are doing and what they can do because of the mass wealth that they and influence that, that, that they accumulate. But um, yeah, it does make me a little bit uncomfortable what they're what they're doing at the moment and I don't think out and out football fans may care because you know all they care about is what's happening on the pitch but I think what happens off the pitch as we've seen over the years can have an influence and often does have an influence with the the results eventually on the pitch so yeah it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable for sure we need to get used to this though in a post-Brexit environment we need to get used to this 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 happening this will be the way that clubs get around issues with um work permits, etc. There'll be more parking of players, I'm sure, on on the continent. There'll be more relationships built up with clubs from Central America and South America. It's not just City. I mean, Watford was the other example that's always used, given the Pozo network of clubs, but all clubs are now doing this. And, and if they're not, then they're going to get left behind. I mean, even, you can look even at sort of middle-of-the-road Premier League clubs there are owners within those clubs who have built up portfolios of clubs around the world. They may not have direct associations in terms of, you know, their relationship with with that Premier League club, but 
there is a relationship there and uh, it will be tapped and it will be used as, as a means of, of ensuring that some talent gets in from abroad post-Brexit. It's also not unique to football and sport as well, by the way. <laughs> no. But yeah, Dom, you know, Chelsea is a, a club that you know well and they fit into that model that you spoke about there. Uh, you know, they've, they've been working externally basically through the loan system and their academy for years. They've got Fulham in, you know, what is usually a fairly tepid London derby, but with only four points from 18, people are whispering. And do you give any credence, for instance, to the German reports that Lampard's on the way out? Now, I know Bilts have got columns to fill like the rest of us, but, you know, surely they can't afford another defeat at Craven Cottage, can they? No, they can't. Absolutely, they can't. And um, I don't think the stuff that was in Bilt was actually new, to be fair. I I think it had been reported in this country well in advance of that. Bilt may have put some... Some more flesh on the bones, but um, well, it was just five identical coaches. You exactly, expect them to be and, and in the, one, it? you know the the very fact that they're, in, they're the flavour of the month now is German reflects the the club's recent transfer dealings. I, I think and the, the the connections that they've built up in in the Bundesliga, and, and uh, that they're, they're trying to work out what is the best to bring the the best out of those players. The Havertz is the the Timo Werners. In, in the Chelsea squad and Lampard needs a good run. Lampard needs a very, very good run now to, to convince the hierarchy that long term, as in next season, he should be in charge still at Stamford Bridge. And unfortunately, look, history history tells us that it's 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 very difficult to to convince a sceptical hierarchy at, at, at Chelsea in the Roman Abramovich era, particularly if they feel that Champions League football is under threat. And as we stand, as we record this podcast, Chelsea are six points behind fourth place Leicester with other clubs in between them. With Villa have got two games in hand, for example. I mean, it's 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 not a rosy picture. We're not at the halfway stage yet. He still can recover, but I I, I do fear that the, the seed has now been sown, the seed of doubt has now been sown within within the Chelsea ownership over what happens next and, you know, whether he should he is the right man to, to lead them on. It may be that Frank Lampard has done the job that he was hired to do, which was to get Chelsea through a very, very difficult period with the transfer ban and bring through some kids. He's done that fantastically well. Reese James, Mason Mount... And Tammy Abraham are all key members of that of that Chelsea squad now. I mean, Gilmore probably could be thrown in there as well, the way he's been playing recently. But is he the man to kick on a a team that's had two hundred and fifty million pounds worth of investment since the transfer ban? Those are the that's the question that he needs to answer. And as it stands at the moment, there there are too many doubts swirling around that. He needs an unbelievably good run to convince them that he should be there next season. Yeah, with that investment in mind, Jordan, now pretty much everyone is fit up front. It's going to be a a time for an absolutely fundamental decision for Lampard. Who starts and in what system? Yeah, I think he has to almost... I'm, I'm kind of torn with the whole who should start up front thing because I think we're in a time now where there isn't a such thing as a 
first 11, I think you have to A, mold your 11 to who you're playing more, more now than ever. And also, I think you have to factor in rotation of players and fitness and tiredness within the unique, the unique season that we're in. So I, 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 I half want to say he needs to, a run of games with, with a run of a set, the same attack going forward. But I don't think COVID and fitness kind of permits you to do that now. So I've got a little bit of sympathy for him in terms of his selection there. But I think I'm noticing a little bit of a resistance and it's just my kind of my gut feeling from clubs to sack managers. And I'm including Chelsea, United and Arsenal in that. I wonder if because of the, the times we're in now and the money lost in the last year, even for the big clubs, I don't think United, Chelsea or Arsenal wanted to sack Solskjaer, Lampard and Arteta. And I think there's times where they could have sacked all three of those guys. Lampard, we're going into that, into that zone right now. I wonder if they think financially it's going to cost us a lot to get these guys out, to get a big big name guy in, right off the investment we've put behind Solskjaer, Arteta and Lampard, and then back the new guy as well. And I think that we're getting to a point now where unless it gets really, really bad, and you could argue an Arsenal case being 15th it was, they don't want to sack. And even someone like Roman Abramovich, I wonder if he's thinking, I really don't want to sack you, Frank. But if you lose these next couple of games or don't win them, I, I, I might have to. I, I think these are must wins now for Lampard. because I, I think that he was backed to to compete for the title and, and they're not don't, doing Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you. I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's any sense in sacking Lampard now. They, they, can, they can go and hire a a Tuchel or a Allegri for free. They don't have to pay a, a compensation, but but I don't see what those guys would, would get out of a squad. When would they have a chance to learn about the squad that they've inherited, given that there are games on top of them every three days for the foreseeable future? There's no time on a training pitch to make any changes, like, you know, tactical tweaks or anything like that. There, there literally isn't a time within a crammed schedule for a change. So the natural time for a change would be in the summer, not not now. You know, I'd still like to think that Lampard would have time to to convince them that he he should take take the club on. But but it's just I think un, underlying it all is that need for Champions League football. Even the amount of investment I know they posted a profit of thirty odd million in in the last window, but that's largely on the back of Hazard and and Murata's sales, and didn't really take into account the investment they've made. So uh, the, the, to contemplate a life without Champions League football and and the influx of cash next season is even at Chelsea I think is pretty unthinkable mm. management is a game of snakes and ladders isn't it Jordan if you think about it Brendan Rodgers Ralph Hasenhutl they've been scampering up more than a few ladders recently Leicester at home to Southampton on at the weekend two teams they're chronically underestimated aren't they Leicester, I don't think so much. Southampton, yes. I, I think most people, I mean, I've still, maybe I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm, I'm an idiot, but I've still got Leicester finishing in the top four this year. I have them as well. So, um, so <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I do you. Okay, so I, I'm far from underestimating Leicester City. I, I really, there's something about them that I just think that, 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 I, that I like. I like how they play football. They've lost some weird games this year. <laughs> they've lost some really random games. I think, <laughs> how did you lose that? Um, but they've also won some big games too. I, I, I can see them finishing in the top four this season. So I, I, me personally, I understand. I, I rate Leicester at the level I think that they should be rated at. I think that they're, they're a top team now operating at an elite level. Southampton, yes. I think Southampton will be disappointed if they 
don't get European football this year. <clears throat> and that's saying a lot because I know there's a lot of competition for that spot. But with the form that Wolves are in, Arsenal, okay, I turned turn the corner now, but they were 15th recently. Southampton will be thinking to themselves, if we can't get top seven this season, I think they'll see it as, as a failure of a season. They've got a good team. I've always rated Hazen Hutu. I've always thought he should, he, he's a really good manager. I thought he should have been the guy United should have got after Jose Mourinho. But I think that maybe the pride in taking someone from Southampton prevents them from kind of looking uh, at that level. But no, I, I don't underestimate Leicester for sure. And I think Southampton, I think, could creep up on a lot of people's radar and do 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 a, do something quite surprising this season, just very, very slyly as well. Yeah. Mr Mourinho, Dom, as he's been mentioned, he blamed the defence for that 1-1 draw against Fulham. Does he basically get what he deserves yet again in terms of his pretty joyless football in terms of getting in front and then not exactly parking buses, but but certainly um, making sure that not too many people had other car parking spaces. You know, are we are we doomed to sort of repeat this discussion ad nauseam? You know, is Jose Mourinho sometimes his worst enemy? I don't know whether he's telling them to do this. I don't know whether it's instinct. And, and actually, now, given it's happened so many times with late goals, Palace, Wolves, Liverpool, in recent weeks and, and, and over the last month, really, whether the players, when they get into those the latter stages of the games and they, they see that their lead is still slender and they you know, their attempts to extend it haven't come to anything, whether the anxiety just grips and they just retreat and retreat and retreat and... And that almost invites danger. I, I don't know whether Mourinho is saying to them just just say stay really really tight and then and then we'll hit someone on the break and get that second goal. It might be it might be the case, but it would be given how often it has gone wrong as a tactic. If it is indeed a tactic in the last few weeks, I would be surprised if that's what he was telling them. I suspect it's more the, the psychology of the of of the playing squad. They they are damaged by. They've been scarred by those late goals. It's only really been the Leeds game, and 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 bless them, Leeds. It's, you know that can happen when you play Leeds. They can, you, you can run right against Leeds. You you can also be swamped. But but if it goes your way and you are solid defensively, you can pick them off. Other teams that Spurs haven't been able to do that to, and and it's sort of it's almost become a self perpetuating myth, isn't it? It's just, it just carries on going, and they they can't break that cycle. I, I disagree, actually. I, I think um, he is telling them, to, telling them to do that. I think he's being very disingenuous, Mourinho. That squad, Surely let's not, not forget. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's not forget, that is a squad that is still the makeup of a Pochettino team that was very expansive, very open and very attacking. I can't believe they've, they've reverted from that style of play to this just overnight. I think it's instructed. I think it's him doing what he does. It's percentage football. It's him saying, right, guys, we have better, better players than Fulham. Therefore, the chances are we will score the first goal. That happened. The chances are, unless they score a worldie or there's a defensive error, if we bank in then, they will not score the next goal. Fulham, as we saw on Wednesday night, did score the next goal, but the percentage is that he reckons they can hold out and it's backfiring game and game again. I've got a Spurs, a friend of mine who supports Spurs. And I said to him, would you take this football if it brings a cup? And he said to me, no. He said, I would only accept this football if it brings the big one, the league, because to justify that brand of football and watching it every single week, 
you've got to bring the biggest trophy. It's not worth a cup and it's not worth top four because Poch was doing that. So I just wonder from the Spurs fans' point of view, yes, I get the whole, we're desperate for a trophy. It's been long. You're an Arsenal fan, Jordan, so you can say that. Oh, no, no, we want to win something. But I just wonder at what point do you enjoy watching your football team play and sacrificing that for winning? Players get trophies, players get goal bonuses, win bonuses, they get medals. As a fan, all you have are memories. And I've thought about this a lot in the last few weeks. If you offered me 1-0 wins all season, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it. My team would be champions, but I wouldn't take it. So the Spurs fans, I get that they're desperate for a trophy. But if this is what they're going to have to watch, and luckily they're not in the stadiums paying for it, week in, week out, I just wonder, if it, is it really worth a League Cup? I, I, I tend to agree with my pal. He's like, it's not worth a League Cup. If it's a League, yeah, cool. They'd take that, but not a League Cup or an FA Cup. Yeah, and right on cue, Pochettino won his first trophy with PSG on Wednesday night, didn't he? Um, <laughs> did a lot I to get that one, didn't is he? The issue... <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah. Uh, long-term <laughs> planning and all that. I suppose the, the embodiment of the problem might be Gareth Bale. Now, here's someone, you know, he won four Champions League at Madrid. He was brought over, you know, to have an Indian summer. He's only 31, for goodness sake. Yet, he didn't didn't bring him on against Fulham. I couldn't get my head around that. What do you think? Has, has Gareth Bale justified being brought on? Has Gareth Bale changed games since he came back to Spurs? Well, you'd say probably not, no. But again... I, I just you, think you, there's, you, there's you, a player that's been completely damaged again by a season spent on the fringes at a club an entire season. I know you made 20 odd appearances for club and country last last year but but um it clearly it took his edge off. This took his edge off him. He's not the same player that he was and he's not the same player that Spurs thought they were re-signing. He's just well, not done it yet. But, sh- but surely you know he he needs regular football and he has been brought back but he's not had regular football. Okay, there was an injury issue but we can only surely make a judgment call on him if he has 10 games on the bounce. But no one is playing 10 games on the bounce apart from Harry Kane and, and, and Son Hun Ming at, at, at Spurs because of the schedule. We, we, mm. we, we can't point. do things both ways. We can't say we need these guys to get fresh and to, and to be rotated and then also say, oh, they need 10 games in a row in this schedule. And it's, it's, it is a quirk of the season, it, but it's also probably a reflection of when you do bring someone back who is rusty, yeah, they, they, yeah, they need time. They need definitely they need time. But it's that's the one thing this season isn't offering anybody time. I, I wonder if it's. I think there's a fitness issue there for sure. But I wonder if this is as an element of when you're when you're not playing for a significant period of time. And I'm interested to see when Meza Özil moves on if the same thing happens to him. If you just lose something, you mentioned the word the word edge there, Mike. I wonder if you just lose a, a, a love, a drive. You just lose something. And I, I also wonder if Jose Mourinho has spotted that and thought you're just not really, you're, you're here, but you're not here. And if, if you can't buy into Jose Marino 100%, he's not having you no matter how much talent you may have. So I wonder if it's a wider thing than just time and fitness. I wonder if that's just a thing of, he's just lodged, lost that, that, that thing that I think you need to be competing at the top level. I think he's, he might've gone mentally. I just wonder if he's gone. And I think sitting on the sidelines for so long, I think, I think that can do that to you for sure. 
Mm. When you talk about the, you know, the congested or uniquely congested nature of the season, Dom, do you think Fulham had the right to feel aggrieved by being made to play at Spurs on Wednesday night? Or is this something that, that all clubs are going to have to get used to very quickly? Well, it, well, it is something that there's, there's going to have to be a bit of flexibility for all all clubs up and down the division because it's going to happen more and more, I suspect, over the course of this second wave. I have sympathy. I have a huge amount of sympathy for them. I spent time with sports science departments in pre-season and they, they, they told me how, how much planning goes into a midweek fixture. It starts three weeks before that game. They're getting training sessions organized and 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 placed and 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 even the time they start and, and the intensity of those sessions how long they last three weeks in advance so that their their players are given the best opportunity to hit the ground running at that particular midweek fixture and that's that's even more of an issue for clubs that aren't used to playing three times a week they're not in europe that the midweek fixtures are genuinely generally quite rare I mean they're almost I know they're more than this season but but normally speaking they're probably only three occasions that you get Premier League midweek fixtures for for a lot of a lot of clubs so it does take a lot of planning so when you think you haven't got a game and you pick your your first team for an FA Cup tie on the Saturday to keep people in sync it does muck up your planning if suddenly then you've got to reconvene and, and oh, oh all these guys have got to go again you know, it's that is the reality of it. They they did well. They did brilliantly well at at Spurs, and and that probably reflects the confidence, the newfound confidence within Fulham's setup that they they hung on in in that fixture, and they were stubborn, and they they weren't overwhelmed. They stayed in the game, and they got their their reward deservedly towards the end of the match, and that that sort of maintains this run of draws that is really giving them a lot of hope and and keeping. Brighton, Burnley, Newcastle, Palace, honest in in terms of what's what's going on on their shoulder, but I have yeah I have sympathy for for Scott Parker because it's it's very very difficult to react to that if you've if you've planned specifically for a game at a certain time. The reality of this season though is, as we mentioned earlier, COVID will have its effect and there's going to have to be some flexibility. These guys are in privileged positions that they're they're able to do their job in this something approaching normal circumstances and not very many people are in the on the in the country at the moment so you just have to get on with it unfortunately yeah what about the nature of the relegation battle jordan you've got brighton at leeds on saturday played pretty well against manchester city but they've only got 14 points from 18 games and essentially you know when you go in they, they treat the opposition penalty area as the Bermuda Triangle, don't they? They just disappear. Um, are they are they in trouble, Brighton? Do you think? Yeah, they are. I felt for a couple of months now that Brighton are in trouble, and you you said it there. Played very well, but got nothing. I think that applies to the vast majority of of, of their games this season. I, I don't see in I don't see why they're not playing their strikers in many of their games I, I, against Miami or Arsenal. They, they had Morpai and Welbeck and Trossard, I believe, all on the bench. And I thought that was a game where they, they, they could have got at Arsenal's back four. So there's, there's a lack of goals in that team. And I just wonder if, and I've said this before as well, if they start, if they may regret sacking the likes of Chris Newton because they traded someone who's a safe pair of hands for somebody who was seen as quite progressive and could play a better brand of football. Now, the brand of football 
I think is better than what they had under the previous manager. But I think they're going to sacrifice their place in the Premier League for that. I, I don't see enough ruthlessness in the final third of, of the pitch. Defensively, I don't think they're awful, but they're still relying on on keeping clean sheets, which I think they're struggling to do to get points out of any game. So, yeah, I, I do fear for Brighton. I think they will go with Sheffield United and, and one of West Brom, Burnley or Fulham as well. Yeah, what about Sheffield United, Dom? They're at home to Spurs on Sunday. Still no realistic chance of survival? Probably not, because they'd have to, even if they replicated their, their form of last season, they wouldn't have enough points really to to be safe, given their, their, their appalling start. I, I, I feel for them, because in, within games, within the vast majority of their games, they've, they've competed really, really well. And it's been the, the, the sort of fine margins that have gone against them. They probably went for them more often than not last season, and they've gone against them this season. That's just... The, the way of it and and the slight changes at the back the the loss of Dean Henderson the lock, loss of Jack O'Connell have, have have again shifted the balance of it all and and made them more vulnerable but I thought that that performance against Newcastle was magnificent I have to say that some of their football in the first half in particular when there were 11 Newcastle players on the pitch the incision again in the the approach play was magnificent but a bit like Brighton they just lack someone who put the ball in the net, and to think they spent twenty odd million pounds on Ryan Brewster, I really hope he he comes good in the in the years ahead because at the moment that 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 fee is really hanging heavy around his neck. He, I mean, the poor lad can't can't score for Toffee. I mean, there was one shot off came off the the, the post, I think, and mm-hmm. and it was, it was so it's just not going for him at all. And this is this is a guy that's an instinctive finisher. We were we were told, and in, indeed had been on loan at, at Swansea last season. So. A bit like Brighton, a bit like a lot of the teams, actually. They just lack a bit of bite up top. If if I was Graham Potter, I'd be I'd be telling um, Dan Ashworth just go out and spend, please go out and spend twenty five million pounds on a striker because if you do that, we'll be safe. Just do that this month. Go and find someone. Go and get. Go and get Deer from in, in uh, from France um, from Stade Rams. I mean, he's he's. You know, only Mbappe scored more goals in Ligue 1 this season, and he's he's pretty much available given that given what's happened with Media Pro in in, in France. Just go and find me a goal scorer, somebody who's going to ruffle a few feathers and put the ball in the back of the net. They don't have to be wonderful approach players. Don't have to have brilliant touch and vision. They just need to be standing in that six yard box and converting some of the myriad chances that we're creating in a game. You could argue the same for Sheffield United, but they've got about four or five strikers in their books, and they're all very similar in terms of how they finish. Mm, you know, well, if you look at it, Moussa Dembele, you know, 33 and a half million euro to Atletico. That struck, I was amazed that no Premier League club came into him for him. You mentioned um, Newcastle. Jordan, eight without a win, one goal in six. Steve Bruce is apparently not in danger. Should he be? I think going back to our early conversation regarding Lampard and, you know, what will happen with him. I wonder, and I guess business doesn't permit emotion, but I wonder if this year, more than any, there should be a little bit more slack and leeway with with managers. I think they're working against really difficult situations. I was thinking, just as Don was talking there about Wilder, and whether, you know, if, if Sheffield United don't beat the Derby record points total, whether that should constitute a sacking of him. And, and my, my, I'd probably veer towards no. And I would probably say the same about Steve Bruce as well. I think if Newcastle go down, 
I mean, you could argue you stick with Steve Bruce because he can get you back up. You know, he's got a good record in, in that sense, I guess. But I'd probably say no, I wouldn't sack Steve Bruce regardless. Is he failing? Um, well, it's fearful football, isn't it? You know, there's a team, you know, he's, he's been there a while. There's, that team is, has got no identity. He's got no intensity. They're pretty lucky that the fans aren't there because they'd be getting awful stick, would. wouldn't they? They would. I, I'm not. I don't think Steve Bruce is a is a really good Premier League manager anyway. So I wouldn't have appointed him in that sense. But I guess you have to. If you're going to sack him, you have to then you have to then balance that with okay. Well, what were our expectations? What do you expect from him to do at Newcastle to keep them in the league to get them top twelve? What is expectation? And I think if, once you kind of have that context, I think it then makes the question a lot easier to answer. If they go down. They may well sack him. I, I don't know. But I think at the moment, the form isn't good. And I think if they can just offer a better brand of football, but maybe still lose games, that in a really backwards way might go for him because at least the fans could say, at least we're getting something from our team. Mm. Let's finish by dragging our social consciences out for a bit of an airing. Football's no-hug rule. Is that realistic? You've got the government and the Premier League telling clubs that they've got to follow protocols dom roy hodgson who you know well he fears that he won't be able to stop these spontaneous celebrations and he also says well okay football should carry on for the state of the for the sake of the nation well um, what's your your take on it first of all if palace are celebrating goals <laughs> in the next few weeks i'll be more than happy um, um i i i Personally, football is providing a not. I wouldn't say normality because it's not. It's not normal. The football is not normal. The schedule isn't normal. Not knowing what game is happening when and and at what time, it's it's disconcerting. But 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 there is a pattern to it. It is something to look forward to every day in in at a, in a period of of all our lives, which is really 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 unsettling. So. Is it, yes, they are in a privileged position. They have to behave responsibly. I, I to, to be honest, on the celebrations thing, I'm not. I do think that's a bit of a, a, a almost a deflectionary tactic. I, I just I don't. I'm more concerned about players breaking protocols outside, outside or away off the pitch than I am about players hugging after they score. These guys are in their own bubbles. They're tested regularly. They. They know they they don't have COVID nineteen when they when they walk onto a football pitch as as much as anybody can know that, you know you, you have a situation in the Manchester City Brighton game when indirect free kick was given in the box and you had sixteen seventeen outfield players within a six yard box and and that's that's almost more disturbing than than players from the same team hugging each other because you've got players from separate bubbles there mixing and say, waiting for the free kick to be taken etc cetera, etc cetera, for twenty seconds thirty seconds whatever it might be. I don't have a problem with, with players celebrating at all. I felt some of the criticism that flared up, I was looking at social media when Sheffield United finally scored a goal the other day and Billy Sharp puts it in and then obviously the, the, the scenes that are ecstatic on the pitch, Sheffield United players finally ahead of the game, finally going to win a match and, and people are criticising them for celebrating? Oh, come on, seriously, they've not won a game since July. It's it's. I just felt that was just... People are just waiting now to jump on stuff like that. And I don't think that is the issue. I have far more problems with seeing 
And, and you mentioned Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson has been through the mill for the last 10 days. He's seen his captain go off and spend New Year's with a Fulham player, Fulham in the middle of a COVID outbreak. He's seen his star player of late, for some reason, think it was a good idea to go and visit his former club and watch a game from the from the director's box, a club where they weren't doing regular COVID tests in the same way that Premier League clubs are. He wasn't wearing a mask because he ate a plate of chips up in that box and he's sitting and he's clearly not sitting two meters away from from his mates i, I just raw Hodgson must be pulling his hair out with stuff like that player celebrations go for it responsibility off the pitch yeah i raise your game footballers i eh? don't you just love them jordan you know you in in your channel four role you you have responsibility for sports politics and and you know associated stories What's the the vibe that you're getting from contacts in that area? In regards to how we feel about it or how we're dealing with it. How how football's uh, dealing with it? There's a frustration because in the newsroom that I work in, it's not a massive football loving, you know, we have football fans, but it's not a massive footballing and sporting environment. So you do get the whole slight sneeriness of oh you know those bloody footballers you know they're in a privileged role and they you know even they can't even you know not hug each other or spit and we've got a you know abide by this one rule for them another rule for us and I find this this whole celebrating issue such a really silly one but yet serious at the same time and what I mean by that is I've heard in the last few days lots of people talking about really personal and sensitive stories about not being able to hug their mother or their daughter for for a year and how hard that is. And listen, if I can't hug my daughter on her birthday, then I'm sure a a bunch of footballers can score a goal and be disciplined enough to not jump on each other. I personally think it is possible because you get some footballers that counts that by saying, well, you don't know what it's like scoring a goal in the 88th minute. And and Dom mentions a big goal that Sheffield United scored. You don't know what it's like. I've even heard some players tell me off record that scoring a goal is better than, it's better than sex. They're like, you know, scoring a goal is better than sex. They, we, we, we love it. It's great. Da, 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 da. You'll never know what it feels like. I won't know what it feels like because I've never scored a goal at that level. <laughs> I, I wonder what you're going to say yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll move on. Um, but, but what I will say is I do think it's possible to be disciplined enough that when you score a goal to not jump on each other. I get that that is... That, that is what you do, I don't think it's an instinct. I think if I said to you, if you score a goal and jump on your teammates and you celebrate as a as a collective that I'm going to dock you for six months wages, trust me, you'd score that goal in the 90th minute and you would not go near any other player on your team. So I think it is possible. I think the danger is, and this was something that I was concerned about when VAR came in, not to deviate too much. The first game of the season when VAR came in, I believe it was last year, was I think it was West Ham versus Manchester City. Sterling scored a goal in the second half after in the first half, City having a goal disallowed for VAR. And when he scored the goal, his reaction was so cold because he was checking for VAR. And what it made me think was, oh, so is VAR now, and as we've seen now, taking away that joy of scoring a goal because you're second guessing whether the goal will be allowed or not. And I think if we're not careful, we're going to do the similar thing with this. Now, I get the whole safety and infection. I get it. 
But my bigger concern is the emotion that it takes away from scoring a goal. And I get with the times we're in, you've got to do what you've got to do. But I, 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 do, I don't fully buy the argument that it's instinctive to jump on your teammates when you score a goal. I think that's learned behaviour. I don't, I think you can still have a, you can celebrate your goal in certain times. And finally, finally, I do get annoyed when people say that football is, is important to the nation's mental health. Because whilst I get some truth in that, I'm sorry, but if I'm a, if I'm a football player, and my health is at risk and therefore my family's health is at risk. I couldn't give a damn about John Bob who lives in Norwich, who needs football to get through the week. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I think we need to be very careful about protecting players versus what's best for the, the well-being of the nation. Yes, in these horrible times, football does give us something to look forward to. It brings a little bit of joy in really dark, difficult situations. But if I'm a player, I'm sorry, my health and my physical health is is paramount for me ahead of your need to watch and be entertained. Well, for some players, maybe most players, it's a reflex action. Score a goal, slide to the corner flag, hug your teammates. Now, in normal circumstances, that's acceptable, even if the celebrations are pretty tedious and they're definitely overblown. Of course, these aren't normal times. Football's a privilege in a pandemic, now, I've got no time for politicians who use the game only when it suits them. They're ignorant, cynical and patronising. But in this case, they've probably got the right to expect gestures of responsibility. Now, I know the odds on contracting COVID in a team huddle or grappling at a corner infinitesimal. But come on, lads, play the game on and off the pitch. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Dom for their insights and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 